This morning we are continuing our series of studies in the New Testament book of Ephesians. And so if you have your Bible with you, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 2 as we're reading from verse 11 through to verse 22. It's a fairly lengthy and complex passage, so please bear with me as I try to communicate all that it contains to you this morning. And you'll find it on page 1819 of the Church Bible. Page 1819. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. When the Apostle Paul comes to this second part of chapter 2, he's talking about the difference between having a Jewish background and heritage and a Gentile background and heritage. Because there in the church at Ephesus, Paul was conscious that he had a very mixed group of people. Some Jewish, some Gentile. And so in seeking to engage them in all that God was doing in their midst, he begins to explain the difference to them. And so he writes in verses 11 and 12 at some length the difference between being a Gentile and being Jewish. And then at verse 13, follow it as I read it with you. He writes, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. And then jumping down to verse 18, he writes, For through him we both have access to the Father, by one spirit. And then verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And please notice how he wraps up chapter 2. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. I suspect for most of us, There are periods in our life when we encounter change, and change at a personal and dynamic level. For some of us, I imagine that when we went to college for the first time, with all of the potential, all of the thrills, all of the possibilities of a new environment, we made new friends. For some of us, we signed up for classes, And after that first class, we shook our head and thought, gosh, what on earth have I done? I can't make out this professor. I don't understand what he's teaching. I'm not sure I will get through the curriculum. But as you attended a second class and a third class and a fourth class, and you began to read and engage with your subject, slowly but surely, you found yourself drawn into the classwork. 
And eventually it began to make sense. And in fact, thanks to that professor, he was so enthusiastic, so engaging, so endearing, it became one of your favorite subjects. Others, I suspect, have experienced change in their work environment. You have been given a new job, a different company. You've begun to work with new people. You've begun to adjust to the context of that working environment. You've faced new challenges, new deadlines. You've developed a new set of skills working in that fresh context. And you've begun to enjoy it. You've learned so much. You are growing. You're maturing. And for others of us, we have experienced similar change in our Christian faith. We were invited to attend church, perhaps by a good friend. Or if you're a husband, you may have been dragged along by your wife and you came somewhat, okay, grudgingly. And you had this strange pastor whom you couldn't understand for the first three weeks. And he talked real funny and you couldn't grasp what on earth he was talking about. But slowly but surely, the scripture began to make sense. You decided to listen and to give it time and to engage with what was being said. And you began to be impressed with the people around you, normal, everyday people. From time to time on Sunday mornings, you would find that those moments of prayer, times of worship, became a priority for you. And here was God drawing you, wooing you into a relationship with him. Something you never imagined would happen. But he's become real over the last year or 18 months. You walk with him each day. He answers your prayer. You sense his peace and that deep, profound contentment that comes with knowing him. And if that has been your experience, it's the self-same experience that Christians have enjoyed and been thrilled by down through the centuries all the way back to the first century and the church in Ephesus who went through a very similar experience. Ten years earlier the apostle Paul had visited Ephesus for the first time. He found a small church there. He stayed there for three years, encouraged them, watched it grow and develop. He knew them by name, knew them intimately. And now He's been arrested for his faith. He's languishing in a Roman prison cell. He's writing to the church at Ephesus. They don't know if they will ever see him again. And he's encouraging them to follow Christ each day. To live out their faith. To be a church at the heart of what is one of the busiest, fastest growing churches in Asia Minor of its day. It was a major seaport had a population of 300,000 people. It had a huge outdoor stadia that was sometimes used for sports, sometimes for theatrical productions. could sit 30 or 35,000 people. It had a world-class library. The library at Ephesus was known across the ancient world. It was a thriving, busy city. And to encourage them, the Apostle Paul is calling them and saying, be the church God is calling you to be. 
Live out your faith. Let others see in you Christian value. Teach them to your children. Watch them grow in grace. Watch them come into a living faith with Christ. Watch them hold on to Christian principles as they grow and mature. Watch for the change that God inevitably brings into the hearts of people that he's drawing into that relationship with himself. And if the Apostle Paul was writing to us this morning, what would he write? Where would he begin? Would he write in a similar manner to the church at Ephesus? To the saints in Greenville, in Christ Jesus, called to be faithful, called to be holy, Live out your Christian faith. You once were dead in trespasses and sin, but that is not you any longer. You know him. You're in love with him. You have that deep, abiding, profound peace that comes from him. And that's why Paul writes in this passage, he is our peace. For he himself is our peace, he writes. Because he's brought us into that intimate place of relationship with the living God. And he may add, you're living in one of the fastest growing cities in the nation. You can't keep up with the construction that's happening. You're running out of space on Sunday morning for the night service. You're seeing growth in children and youth ministry. You are in an exciting place. In fact, notice what he says from verse 19. In fact, let's jump on down. Yeah, 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens to Christ. That's what he's writing about. But fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Notice what he does. He uses an analogy of a building. And he writes, but on the foundation of the apostle, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, in him The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Be the people of God. Live out your faith. And this is going to be a hard week for us as individuals and also as families and as a congregation. Because as a church, we are facing a significant challenge, a challenge that only comes once in a generation. We're seeking to raise $35 million to continue being the church that God has called us to be. We're needing new youth areas, new children's areas, new worship space. And that will not come easy. That's a tough challenge. $35 million, our accountants tell us it's just a number. It's not. It's an enormous number. And we need your prayers. We cannot do this in our own power. And so for those of you who have been praying over the last few weeks, continue to pray this week. Because next Sunday at all services, we will be stepping forward with a commitment card 
saying as an individual or as a family, we are committing over and above our tithe. And that's a huge ask. We are committing to First Presbyterian a financial commitment for the next several years. And it will make such a difference. Every dollar will count. Every prayer matters. The decisions we make this week, the action we take next Sunday, will determine our ministry and our purpose and direction for the next 30 to 35 years. That's incredible. Back in the mid-80s, when a previous generation built the sanctuary, what a spectacular job they have done. We are the recipients of that. Talk about forward thinking and planning. Talk about being willing to commit and dedicate and make a difference. It's right here. And now it's fallen to our generation to step up. And so my challenge this week is this. When the capital campaign packet arrives, take out that commitment card, go through the booklet, and as a family, begin to pray. Father, how would you want us to respond? And Ruth and I will do exactly the same thing. We'll sit down on Monday and Tuesday and go through our monthly budget and begin to say, okay, where can we trim a little here and a little there and put off some of the things we're planning in order to make a difference here? Because we believe having a church of this nature, of this significance, located at the heart of the city, makes a difference. Every day, our ministry has an influence and impacts the spiritual heart of this city. Every day. What a difference that makes. When we reach out and show compassion to young ladies who've discovered they're expecting and thinking of abortion, and we step up and say, there are other options out there. There are other options out there. It doesn't have to be this way. When we take a stand on the sanctity of human life, that makes a difference. When we show compassion to those whose lives have been blighted by alcohol and drug addiction, those who are on the receiving end of the toxicity of human trafficking, domestic violence, homelessness, we're right there supporting, encouraging agencies who do it every single day. And we're right there offering the forgiveness and the grace of God. We're right there to say, you can, by His grace, begin again. There is such a thing as hope. There is such a thing as a fresh start. And we have this wonderful opportunity to have a voice in our city, in our community, our state, and even wider in our nation. And sometimes we'll take a stand and say the Christian voice is important in our national debates. Our Christian voice should be heard, marginalizing and minimizing Christians within those four walls on Sunday morning is not us. It's not what we're called to. We're called to live out our faith day by day by day. 
We're called to stand firm and remind our society and our culture of the First Amendment to the Constitution. And it's crystal clear. That's why it's the First Amendment. It's not the 10th or the 12th. It's the first. The Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And when I'm asked to go to large events in the city, which I am from time to time, to give the opening invocation and they tell me that I can't pray in Jesus' name, I very politely and graciously remind them of the First Amendment. There is such a thing as freedom of speech. There is such a thing that I can stand for square on. And we as Christian people have a voice in our community. And there is no such thing as the prohibiting of the free exercise thereof. And we will not be quiet. We will not be marginalized and we will not be minimized. We will be the people of God for whom integrity matters, compassion matters, holiness and righteousness and Christian standards and value are important to us. They define who we are. And in subsequent generations, we will continue to do that. That is worth sacrificing for. That's worth praying for. That's worth remembering what Scripture teaches us. Live out your faith, not only in Ephesus in the first century, but in Greenville in the 21st century. As we move towards communion this morning, let me try and wrap it all up in verse 13, when the Apostle Paul reminds them, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Many years ago as a young minister, I had an older colleague preached extremely well one Sunday morning. And he asked this question and it stuck with me down through the years. And he asked, if you could open your Bible and point to one chapter or one verse when God was at his very best, where would you point? Which chapter? Would it be Genesis 1? Those memorable, wonderful, dramatic words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Can you imagine what that was like with that explosion of creativity? When creation in those early moments of eternity passed. My mind rushes immediately to the Sierra Nevada foothills. Driving through Northern California, surrounded with giant sequoias, moving into Yosemite Valley, coming through the tunnel and seeing El Capitan and the cathedral rocks, half dome in the distance. God in all of his wonder and splendor. Is that where he was at his best? Some of you with a Baptist background are saying, no, 
further along. Keep going. Was it Exodus when in front of the burning bush, God appeared to Moses, spoke deeply and profoundly, so much so that Moses returned to Egypt to protest to Pharaoh about his treatment of the Israelites. And Pharaoh almost took Moses' life. But Moses, calling on the hand of God, asked for plagues. And eventually the people of Israel, over a million people emancipated, moved through the Sinai Peninsula towards the Promised Land. Was he at his best when Moses stood on the side of the Red Sea, his arms held high? And if you've seen the Red Sea, you'll know this is quite something to part it and let the people of God move forward. Was he at his best right then? Bringing to pass his purpose and will for the salvation of humanity centuries later. Was it in Daniel when he was dropped into the lion's den? And God in his sovereign protection looked after Daniel. Knowing that Daniel would participate in the rehabilitation of the people of Israel and moving towards the salvation of humanity again. Was it when David was writing, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Was it his comforting presence to the shepherd boy? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. If you've ever experienced that, you'll know what I mean. Was he at his best then? Or was it Christmas Eve? Countless cherubim and seraphim filled the air. And God strained the patience of that angelic force by creating in this Christ child, God incarnate, born in a stable, who was laid down to rest in an animal's feeding trough. Of all of the wonder and glory and majesty of the Almighty, Contained within an animal's feeding trough. Was he at his greatest then? Further along. Keep going. Because at the end of the gospel. At Calvary. My God, my God. Why? Why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, Lamech, Sabachthani. When all the sin of all the world was placed on him. And he became sin for us. That's when God was at his greatest. And this morning, we gathered round bread and wine, remembering a body broken for us, blood shed for us. And this morning, as we take and participate in this communion service, remember what he accomplished for you.
that's why Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. In Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. That's why it's important to be the people of God at the heart of this city to make a difference for his kingdom and to expose our city and our community and our state and our nation to the wonder of his love. That's the power of the cross. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this powerful reminder from Ephesians of all that you accomplished for us at Calvary. Allow us, please, to participate in this bread and wine this morning, remembering your body broken for us, your blood shed for us, and enable us by your grace to know your comforting presence this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.